Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Amor Tolls. So listeners know I read all the show emails, all the comments on Apple and other places. Amor is the number one most requested author for this show. It's not even close. He's the author of Rules of Civility, A Gentleman in Moscow, and most recently, The Lincoln Highway, which today is available in paperback. His avid fans range from Bill Gates to President Obama to Tom Hanks to me. Many believe he's the most talented author working today, and I have said to folks in the past, he's the only living author never to have published a bad sentence. Amor, it's great to see you. Welcome. Doug, thank you very much. That was over the top. Well, I, thank you. You're, you're, well, I, did, I noted that I said published a bad sentence because <laughs> I'm sure you've had a few clunkers in your early drafts, but yeah. listeners should also know you're one of the hardest working writers I know, and by the time anything gets to print, you've, you've yeah. made it stellar. The James Brown of literary fiction. Maybe I should, that should be an aspiration. <laughs> Hardest working man in literary fiction. No, I'm far from that. But yes, thank you. Well, are you great to be here? It, it, it's a pleasure, and I'm 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 thrilled with your cocktail selection, which is the Negroni, which comes as no surprise to me. And you will note that we have Bar Hill Gin here, which was a gift from our mutual pal Chris Bojelian, distilled in Vermont. Oh, great. So I'm going to get started on that. I'm also thrilled to debut on Dedicated. The oversized ice cube. Awesome. Because the the crushed ice, and i got to wrestle these things out of here, the crushed ice was not getting it done for these drinks. I'm sure you have you would have had that experience in the past, but I had to... This went right to the top at Sirius, so you know. This was Jennifer Witz, Scott Greenstein, Gorab, Liz Aiello, all had a big meeting, all gave involved. me a little freezer space. All involved. That's very impressive. Yeah. It is very impressive. All right, for so those of you yeah, listening at home, these are large... Cubic ice cubes, perfectly done, <laughs> like in a modern speakeasy. You gotta, we gotta get the big rock in there. The crushed ice, it kind of melts fast, and all of a sudden yeah. your drink's watery, and oh, it's, it's not good. This, uh, I heard a rumor they had Malone on by Zoom to weigh in on the freezer space. It's a big deal, and then I got approved. Very good measuring. I'm watching. He's doing it. He, he's using no jigger. He's doing it by eye. But uh, kind of free form, yeah. Nailing the proportions, I think. 
We got to get Mike. Would you get one photo of this bar hill? I got to send it to Bojellian. Yeah. I'll take a second ice cube since you've gone to so much trouble of of you know securing. You got it. I know it's a little tacky to do that, but I'm going with a double. Thanks. You know, I'm, I'm you know I'm gonna kind of follow along with that. <clears throat> All right, here goes the orange. Oh yeah, thank you. Okay, I'm slicing up the orange rind. All right, voila. Okay, my friend. Cheers. Cheers. Good to be here. Good to see you. Thanks to all our listeners. All right. So I was thinking about, here we go. I'm settled in. Got my first drink. It's always, you know, one of the, the most important things in a restaurant is time to first drink to table. You know, when you sit down. Right. They've got to get a drink out to you yeah. fast. Then you can kind of relax and settle yes. in and. If you're sitting there waiting for a drink forever, it's like you're all antsy at the table. I know. I know we're going to be talking about something entirely different—books and literature and all that stuff. But but the con- when they come and they say, "Would you like water?" and then you they they leave and then mm-hmm. bring the water. And it, why don't they just take the drink order right then? Right then. Yes. Yes. I don't want the water. <laughs> what I really want is my Negroni. Yeah, you can bring the water later. Bring the water whenever you want to bring the water. But I don't want to have a. We don't need to have a like a, a round right. of water to make up our minds about what we're going to have to drink. Yeah, but yeah. let's draw the experience out after I've had my and drink. I then I can people, relax. It's tough to be in the service business, but but that but that pattern is a very interesting, strange sort of concept that we're going to bring water and then we'll talk about drinks yeah. later. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think I feel like that's a metric every restaurant should be able to advertise is time to first drink to table. So as I was coming in today to the studio, I was thinking about your career. And as we know, writers are sort of famous for small jealousies. You know, one, someone gets a nice treatment in a New York Times review or a Kirkus starred review or something like that. But you seem to exist above that jealousy dynamic. And the way J.K. Rowling was bringing in millions and millions of kids into the bookstores, getting them interested in reading your books in this age of great TV, remind people how great the novel can be as a format. And I think that, that writers, when they, when they think of you, they're not thinking of jealousy. They're thinking, go, Amor, go. Like You're getting booked wow, on late okay. night TV and CBS Sunday mornings, and these are not things that, these are not spots writers compete over. Writers, generally speaking, are not getting booked on these shows. And so when you as an author do get booked on it, I think that you know, people are thinking, great, rise, rising tide. Well, I hope we all think about that of each other. I mean, you may <laughs> be right about, about the, the jealousy thing, but and I'm sure I share in it both as a as a, as a uh, holder of jealousy and a, and a and a recipient of jealousy, both. But uh, but you're nice to say it. So I didn't mean to put you on the spot with all the gushing to to okay. open up, but uh, but I want to start with your early life. So born in Boston. And I know from spending some time together and also reading some articles where you've been quoted, you're summers in Martha's Vineyard have you have friendships from there formative experiences from there that sort of wonderful dynamic of summer friends has been a big element in your life can you talk about your early years and in particular your your summers there which I think kind of shine through in in some ways for you sure uh you know I I I did I I was fortunate enough uh that my family did have uh would spend you know part of the summers uh with a broader family, you know, members in a community away from the home where I was going to school, and uh, obviously, which is a luxury uh, to begin with. Um, but setting that aside uh, for a second, I, I think that summer itself is pretty 
extraordinary time for young people, no matter you know where you are. In you know you kind of exit school into this incredible sort of sense of of freedom as a seven year old, a ten year old, a fourteen year old, and and the relationships that you make in that context, you know, where you don't have to go to class, you know, you don't have to go out on the sports field, you. You are just sort of managing your own time. Uh, the relationships that you make that it can be very sort of profoundly strong uh, mm -hmm. in this sort of un unusual and unique way. And that certainly happened uh, to me uh, in that community. We, just, we made great friends and we, we are still, you know, most of us are all friends today. Yeah. And, uh, and it comes from being together in, in that sort of Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn way you know yeah. when you're young and whoever's in your backyard is you're going to end up being your best friend you know yeah. no matter what they're like whatever their personality is it doesn't make i any remember difference. you saying something like that you know there's five kids who are like this is my crew like yeah we're here we're sort of for better or worse this is who we're in it with yeah. and you know for better in your case i remember reading something about european school systems we're talking about summer was too interruptive and they there should be you know breaks should be spread out should all be sort of one long gradual thing and i prefer our way for many of the things you said like <laughs> yeah, there, there's right. also a sense of completion like yeah. i went from seventh grade to eighth grade yeah. and i i can spike the ball at the end of seventh grade before yeah. i move on and then i get this big gap of a, a variety of experiences yeah. i think it's, it's important and, and you know a two-week vacation feels like a two-week vacation summer felt endless you know at the <laughs> right. front end it felt endless and, yeah. and that's a big change i think for the way a child experiences it and, yeah. and you're right i wouldn't go for the for the diced up scattered two-week vacation yeah, that sounds no fun to me it's un-american no, no, exactly <laughs> so then on to yale undergrad and were That's you right. pursuing writing as an undergrad i know you come from a bit of a finance background your i think your dad was a yeah. brown brothers guy yeah, maybe my, and, and, uh, my father was a banker uh, yeah. and financial services generally um but no but I, I began writing fiction when i was in first grade or that i became i aspired to be an author when i was in first grade i be, i wrote probably my first fiction maybe in third or fourth grade or that kind of thing and um and so by the time i arrived at, at yale yeah I, I was primarily interested in reading uh literature fiction poetry philosophy mm -hmm. and writing it you know as a career path i guess i didn't really ask myself that too much about where the money would be, about, about, <laughs> about, about, about whether it was a good job or not you know mm -hmm. and, and I, but it was just really what i wanted to do it's what i love yeah. doing and so so i took a you know, the majority, more than half of my classes at Yale were were in literature. Uh, you know, so I would get. A, I, I was lucky enough that through at the, at the time, you know, through AP exams, you could place out of a lot of things. There were a lot yeah. of requirements at Yale, but I placed out of my language requirement. I placed out of my math requirement. I placed out of my science requirement, and it meant that I could just start packing my uh, schedule with more and more uh, literature Electives, classes. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think I, in my sophomore year, I think I took seven literature classes out of 10 classes, you know, and, uh, and so that, cause that's what I love doing. And it's sort of a, a, a side story on that is when I was a sophomore, a great New York based avant-garde writer named Walter Abish came to teach for the semester. And uh, I applied uh, and got in to Abish's class and he was terrific, real, profound avant-gardist in, in sort of coming out of the 1950s and 60s in the United States and um, had an eye patch, was born in Austria, like a great, oh, nice. and lived, cast, in, yeah. lived in the village, lived down at, at, uh, across the street from Phoebe's. He, he still uh, lives there in his 90s um, in, in the village. And so really a great guy. When he, in this class uh, where we were writing short stories and, uh, and I had a good relationship with him and um, and you're getting reinforcement as a young artist. 
one of the things he did is that towards the end of the semester, he said, hey, you know, I, I don't know what this is going to mean to any of you, but here's a hundred books that I think are, are fascinating, interesting uh, novels that to me in some way triggered some sense of admiration for what they were trying to achieve. And, and it's sort of a mixed bunch, but for what it's worth, here it is. And so I took that and we would get out, you know, as you sort of like, like today, college would let out like May 15th or something crazy, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I would go to the vineyard by myself. There was nobody there. Mm -hmm. And I would spend the sort of the winter going to use bookstores, trying to find as many books off of Avish's list as I could find. And I would arrive on the vineyard with like 25, 30, something like that. And I would read a book a day. And I would do that. Day. Yeah, wow. I did that for two to three weeks. And that was a huge... So you've uh, completed the 100 by now. Well, I don't think I have. <laughs> I should have. But then, of course, you start getting lists from other people. But yeah, I did. Yeah. I read pretty deeply into it. I probably read 70 out of the 100, you know, before I got moved on to other things. And uh, but anyway, but that was a big experience. So two things. I would, A, I would love to see that list if you are able to acquire that old list. That oh, you started I have that on. list, yeah. And number two... I would love to see you make that list. I mean, that would be like a great, I don't know, New Year's thing for you to put out, like Amor Tolls' top 100. I, I actually, you know, I, I, I'm asked enough for, you know, what books I'm interested in or what I've what I've admired that I, I do, you know, if, when people send me emails, they go to amortolls.com and they go to the contact page. Mm -hmm. They'll say, uh, you know, what are you reading? I, I, I have a list of, of, I can't remember, maybe it's 70 books I admire that I share with them. So I do, do okay. that, and I'm happy to do that with you, Doug, too. All right, thank you. Please send. So from Yale undergrad, and by the way, you're like the, I don't know, the fifth person from Yale undergrad on this show. There's is that so true? Many, yeah, I oh, mean, that's a bad well, sign. Well, Min Jin Lee is, yeah. is one, and uh, Lee Bardugo is another. I think there are others. I can't, I'll have to go back and look. But from yeah. Yale undergrad, you go to Stanford for an MFA where you studied with, that's where you studied with Peter Matheson, right? No, I studied with Pat Matheson while I was still at Yale. Okay, and uh, uh, at, uh, at Stanford, where I actually got a master's in, 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 I got an MA. It was a part of the fiction writing uh, program, so I was in the Stegner uh, uh, workshop. You know, we'd call it over the over the two years. But I also received a master's in literature, which was great for me because, again, I have found as a writer the reading of literature more productive for me than the workshop format mm -hmm. you know i've got nothing against like, the workshop and a lot of great things me, come meaning like workshop. collaboration talking with different yeah, aspiring or writers or yes. aspiring writers about stuff you just rather read a great book i'd rather read a great book with a with a professor who's you know a world expert on on on, you know, on melville you know like i was mm -hmm. studying with al jelpy at, uh, at stanford it was a world you know authority on melville and emerson and whitman and and uh and and that and I and I the, I enjoyed the workshop and the workshop was is great and you do learn things there but I'm just saying for me as I compare the two I learned more from the careful reading of literature than I did from uh, debating the mm -hmm. merits of the stories of my peers at the table you know mm -hmm. in the workshop format but I but yes I, I did that there and and study with a guy named Gil Sorrentino who was another great sort of modernist from uh, the 50s mm -hmm. and 60s in the United States. What was Matheson doing over at Yale? He was he was visiting Matheson was whatever. visiting uh yeah he came in for a semester mm -hmm. uh was uh, probably in his 60s at the time and uh and so I applied to his seminar and then we became quite close and yeah. uh and I I ended up doing independent projects with him he came back for another semester I studied with him again and then we became friends and maintained a relationship you know un until he died yeah so despite his encouragement and and recognition of your gift really you then went into finance. So yes. from from 1991 to 
2012, yes. you were an investment manager at Select Equity Group. Is that, is that right? That's right. That's so right. 21 years there. I'm wondering how you feel about that, that 21 year period. I mean, do, do you view that as like it had to happen that way? I mean, life is great for you now, so I can't imagine there are big regrets one way or the other, but yeah. did it have to happen that way or it's, it's just simply what happened? It's how it worked out. I think it's, yeah, um, I loved my job. It was great fun. And we, we uh, and the firm's still thriving, but it was great. I had great colleagues. We had great clients. We had a great craft. It's a well-paying job too, I guess. So, so the, it was just, it was a great uh, 20 year. Uh, was it kind of, did you start years. it? Was it sort of entrepreneurial? George, I, I think there's a lot in. Uh, the founder course. started it and he's uh -huh. still at the helm today and uh, started on his own. Uh, I was the first uh, employee to join him on a long-term basis. And, mm. and so, uh, but, but it really, I mean, it's his shop and, and, mm. and, uh, um, and he's done an amazing job, uh, st uh, steering it and, and, and moving it forward. It's his dream and, and it's been fulfilled and continues to be fulfilled. Um, but anyway, it was an amazing group, the leadership, the, my colleagues, my clients, uh, our clients. I also, there's a lot of overlap between writing and entrepreneurship You know, you sort of come in and yeah. write the next chapter of the thing. And so I, I can see how some of the entrepreneurial aspects of that would satisfy some of your creative yeah, you know, yes. needs. I, I don't really think of it. I, I, it, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, it didn't in that sense. It, it satisfies a different kind of desire. But, but you know, I, I think more, to, more going, you know, going back to your, your point, Madison was, was, uh, was a great supporter of my work. And he was really the first person where it was someone I truly admired and who had looked at my work very closely and has said, you know, I think you can do this. And, uh, you know, when, when your mother says it, it doesn't mean anything, like, you know, you might, <laughs> and, uh, and nor, you know, so, so here was a person that, so that was a, a big moment for me as a young artist is to have Matheson's approval. And so when I went and uh, began working, uh, in the investment field, uh, it really upset him. And, and he had you know, invested a lot of time. And energy. Did, did he sit you down for a conversation well, saying, why are you so, doing this? So, you know, he would say, so uh, are you still on that? Are you still working in that thing? And I said, yeah, I'm still working there because we'd see each other every year or whatever. And he said, yeah, okay, well, how's your novel coming? Well, I mean, you know, I'm kind of sort of falling behind because he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was this early drafts of rules or? No, no, this is long before that. So this was in the early 90s. So at any rate, so I, I, I stopped writing for a decade. Basically, while we were getting the firm off, you know, building the firm uh, from its you know smaller beginnings to to a larger stage, and um, and so I stopped writing for ten years, and I would see Peter, and he would sort of say, "How's it going?" And he kind of could tell that I wasn't making progress as a writer. Mm -hmm. And so finally, we went out to dinner one night, and he said, "Listen," at the end of dinner, he said, "Listen, uh, I've known a lot of people, artists of varying kinds, uh, you know, movie makers, writers, poets." dancers, painters who've gone to Wall Street. You know, I knew them in my generation, the generation that came after me. I knew them the generation that came after that, you know, and uh, I know them in your generation. And what I can tell you is that that's an interesting enough career with interesting enough people that pays well enough that my experience is that anyone who left art to go work on Wall Street never came back. <laughs> it's a black hole. And so you should assume that your life as a writer is now over. Oh my gosh, he really laid it on you. He did. And so that was the end of our dinner. And, uh, and I was, that kind of, uh, he was right to say it and thank, and I, uh, God bless him for saying it because it haunted me, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I, I kept, even as I continued to work, I thought he's right. You know, if I don't climb, if I don't, if I don't 
redirect some of my energy and explore my uh, interest in writing, my abilities in writing, develop my craft further, then I'm going to end up, you know, bitter and a drinker. And so, so <laughs> I eventually began carving out time on the weekends. Now, now you're just happy and a drinker. Now I'm just happy and a drinker. But so I started uh, writing uh, on the weekends and, you know, wrote a book over seven years that I didn't like and set that aside um, in my 30s. And then in my early 40s, having learned a lot from that experience, I wrote Rules of Civility. And then when that uh, became a bestseller, I, I then retired from the firm, um, you know, letting them go on and, 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 and without me. Uh, and uh, and that's been great. So it's been a good sequence of events. But, it, 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 uh, but I, you know, I don't know. Do I wish that I had gone to become a writer at the age of 27 and, you know, and stayed the course. Uh, there's a little bit of, of, of bittersweet regret looking back on that, mostly because, because I would have written more books by now. Yeah. You 21 know? years at your pace. That's four more books. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, at least. Right. And so, yeah. so anyway, so that's a little, you, you sort of, I carry that with me. So then, yeah. but that, but that does put more interest in me making sure that everything that I do now, I, 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 I want it to be challenging for me. I want it to be interesting to the reader. I want it to be the best possible work I can do because yeah. I don't have a runway. Yeah. You know, I don't, I'm not Don DeLillo who published, you know, four books in six years in his twenties or early, you know, late twenties, <laughs> early thirties or whatever it was, you know, and, and he's using them to experiment. You can tell that some of those are quite unfinished. His early novels, they're, they're quite short and yeah. quick and weird. And, yeah. and he's working towards the the work that he's going to do in in uh you know white noise and underworld and things like that so um i i don't have that luxury where my first book's coming out in my mid 40s you know yeah. you have, i better start getting it right now <laughs> well you know it is how it worked out and uh as readers it's it's worked out great i have two quick follow-up questions on that though number one is the book you worked on for seven years yeah. that's in the bottom drawer will yeah. that ever come out no Number two, you know, you have to like when you donate your papers to the New York Public yeah. Library, you'll have to donate those so we can, we can all see it. I might have to destroy it, but yeah, but go yeah, but go on. <laughs> that's what uh, that's what Marlon James did with his first uh, yeah. thing. Yeah, I think you know that story. Number two <laughs> is I should have looked this up when I was doing my homework. What year did Matheson pass away? Oh, you know, I'm not good with before memory. rules. No, uh, Rules came out, became a bestseller, and then we had lunch together uh, shortly thereafter. And, and, oh, he and, must have been so happy. Well, he was very happy, and I was so happy that 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 we could have had that moment together. You yeah. know, and and, uh, uh, and then that I could show him that I did come around. You know, yeah. and that the time and effort that he invested in me. Uh, that I, did you I, say I like, man, that off. really shitty thing you said to me like twelve years ago? It, it worked. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, I'm grateful for what he said. I don't think that. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would say it to a young person myself. Good. Know, someday. Good. So I remember one of our conversations from a long time ago, and I, and I I can't remember if I have this exactly right, but you had a notebook or that outlined these ideas, but you you basically had like five or six ideas that you kept with you through some of your years in finance that you thought were good ideas for a book. And rules was one of them. And you said, oh, I'm going to do this one first. Or maybe presented a group of ideas to an editor or an agent early on. Yeah. Am, I, am I making this up? Uh, no, I, I certainly didn't present it to an agent or editor. But, but uh, um, what, what you're describing is a version of, of, of the truth. So, <laughs> yeah, you're very close. <laughs> I must have had many cocktails. What, 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 I mean, the, 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 uh, the full picture is that having wanted to be a writer since I was a kid and having written fiction in high school and college and graduate school, there are many stories that I have thought of that I would like to tell, you know, uh, certainly closer to a hundred than, than 10, let's say. And, uh, some of those, uh, I have been thinking about for 10 years or 20 or 30 years. And in some cases I have 
written down on a note card what the full idea is. In some cases, that note card has become you know, four pages of, of, mm -hmm. of written notes. In some cases, it's become three notebooks filled with material as I've thought about it more and more and more. And but there's so in my office, there are multiple uh, you know, stacks of notebooks that are related to different story ideas uh, at different stages of development. And then, you know, word files and, and <laughs> scraps of paper, there's the whole gamut, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, yes, when I finish a work like A Gentleman in Moscow, what I'm generally doing is looking out and saying, okay, what out of this little forest of ideas is most appealing to me right now? And very often it is going to be something where the, where it's not the note card. It's it's something where there's three yeah. notebooks full of work already, um, because I, obviously that's something that's grabbed me, obsessed me to a greater degree, and I can I can see it in in greater detail. Um, and then you'll sort of pick which of those stacks of notebooks is the one we're going to go with, and mm. you know, and then you say, okay, yeah, the Lincoln Highway. Let's do the one with the kids. You know, the kids in the car. It's the kids in the car this time. I love the idea that there's a single note card out there that could be the idea behind a gentleman sure. in Moscow yeah. or matchbooks. Yeah, yeah, you know, in the old days. I mean, how would it, it, it which, it, are any of your three, can you draw the line back to that single note card, or are they all in a notebook? Oh, you know, uh, A Gentleman in Moscow, uh, I had the idea of, for that book while I was walking into a hotel in Geneva in my former career, and uh, I had the idea on the elevator on the way upstairs to checking after and check checked into the hotel. Mm -hmm. And I have the hotel stationery from that night of, you know, sketching out the major events of that story on the first four handwritten pages of notes on the hotel stationery. So yes, yeah, sometimes and they're awesome. dated. So I can go right back to within minutes. That of when should that, be in a frame somewhere. Uh, yeah, if it's not already. That, yeah. All right. So you're, you've gotten, Rules was 2011, Rules of Civility. Yep. Gentleman in Moscow was 2016. Yep. Lincoln Highway, 2021. So yep. a five-year clip here. Right. And this, this is a good segue into process because, yeah. uh, A, I would love to see you speed it up because I want more, more reading material from you. But Me too, yeah. Um, I know you're a relentless outliner. Your, yeah. your outline is almost like a living document as you go through your first draft. Can you talk about how you use the technique of outlining in your, in your yeah. work? And you're, and you're right, Doug. I, I, I am a person who wants to plan very thoroughly what the book is going to be before I start writing chapter one. And, and so I do spend this multi-year time frame. I call it the design phase. I use those notebooks to imagine every event, every setting, the characters and their backgrounds, their psychology, the tone of the book. I'll just keep working through the notebooks, getting a better and better sense of the story in its totality. Uh, and when I, when I can sort of, I understand the book from beginning to end and its totality, then I'll start building an outline and then I'll write it. And so it is a multi-year process just to get started for me. And, um, and I do that really, this is a little counterintuitive. The, the reason that I've become such a, a dedicated outliner and sort of someone who thinks very carefully about all this in advance is the, the counterintuitive part is that it's, it's. You know, if we th talk about modern uh, neurological science, left brain is the analytical side, uh, the analytical side, the problem solving side, the mathematical side, and the right brain is is the creative side, uh, the imaginative side, and um, that you know we understand that the brain has these two sort of hemispheres as where they operate a little bit differently, and the reason I do the outlining is because I want to maximize the input of the creative, imaginative, unpredictable, subconscious driven side of my mind while I'm writing the chapters. 
And if I know what's going to happen, that's what allows that to occur. Hmm. Whereas if I, if I was going into a chapter and I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know who's going to walk into the door, I don't know what his or her background is, I don't know what the implications are for what's going to happen next, you know, I don't know what the tone is going to be, then a lot of the energy intellectually is going into sort of problem solving mode. So mm -hmm. while I'm writing, I'm figuring those things out. And in essence, the wrong side of the brain is driving the car. You know? yeah, yeah. And what I want to do is know everything that's happening, know the people, know the setting in a rough sense, know the characters in a sort of personal way so that while I'm actually writing the chapter, it is the right side of the brain that takes over. And yeah. that way I can really follow the poetic instincts. I can follow the subconscious, you know, uh, ideas that, pop up i can follow images that present themselves which i'm not even sure why they're there and yeah. and and the combination of words that surprise me and so all that's what i'm interested in within the chapter is is having that kind of because that's what to me really brings the life yeah. to the chapter at the end of the day that that's terrific i i've actually i've never heard it described that way and even down to the physiological aspects yeah. of it but as as you know and i know you've listened to a few episodes of the show some folks come on here and say, I'd never outline because that takes the energy out of it. As a fellow outliner yeah. myself, I don't understand that. I, yeah. I, they're like, I, you know, they, they feel like it adds energy. It all comes back to the thing. Every writer is different. Everybody's right. brain works differently. Um, I think my brain works uh, closer to how yours does because I, I need those kind of signposts already sort of established. And then I can tell the story. Yeah through there it is different for different kinds of writing and for different writers as you say lee has been on the ch on the show lee child has been on the show uh we know we both know lee lee is you know he is someone who says i don't outline and uh you know whether it's true or not i mean i, I think he is it is true but i get it from his standpoint because because mm -hmm. part of what uh lee writes with great energy uh a great economy and uh what he part of what i can imagine and i'm imagining you know i'm lee for a second is is he wants to be surprised by what happens to Reacher next, you know, because mm -hmm. that's what sharpens his focus, right? He becomes, it's like Reacher suddenly being attacked in a restaurant out of nowhere is Lee is like Reacher at that moment, which is mm -hmm. I got to take in everything as quickly as possible as to see what's going on if I'm going to get out of this thing alive, you know, and, and that brings great energy and economy to the way that he writes that. And for mm -hmm. him, you know, if he sort of thought about the scene in advance, he might write it in a duller way, kind of you know, I, you know, yeah, so, yeah. I, so I, 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 you know, it is, it is, a, uh, you do have to figure out as a writer based on uh, what you're trying to achieve, what you're trying to write, what the tone of the work is, is, is what works for you and, and yeah. you know, that is so there is plenty of room for and by the way, your outline is not written in stone no, either so absolutely. as you get into chapter four you're oh, yeah. adjusting your outline for chapter five yeah that's and, right and, and that sort of thing as i like to describe it is is the the uh as i'm writing the first half of a carefully outlined novel the back half of the outline is changing radically mm -hmm. you know, because i'm learning through the writing of the first half of the novel what this back half of the novel should be i'm getting mm -hmm. a better understanding of what it should be and and i'm beginning to to elaborate and make a so one to one degree things are changing in the back half of the outline events mm -hmm. are changing characters are changing whatever but also it's getting richer and richer and richer it's getting longer in essence mm -hmm. as i get a better understanding of, of have you had a massive change like your ending to gentlemen was yeah. great with the count I, I won't say the whole thing to spoil it for anyone who if there's anyone left on the planet who doesn't know it but yeah. uh protect that was yeah. that was that something that you knew from the start and remained unchanged or was that part of the living document and you changed the ending as things for, went on for my three novels rules of civility a gentleman and the lincoln highway i knew exactly how they're going to end at the very beginning and they did not change in either of the three cases mm. and so I, I you know i knew 
who was going to be in the final chapters, what they were going to be doing, uh, why. I mean, I, I knew all that. And in many ways, all of the imaginative work that goes on in the design phase is trying to figure out, I know what's, how it's going to begin. <laughs> I know exactly how it's going to end, like mm -hmm. day one. And I'm trying to figure out everything that happens in the middle. Yeah. How about titles? Do you ever, do you ever have a late in the game change on title of any of your three novels? In every case. Uh, a Gentleman in Moscow was called, uh, up until, I mean, the, the book was already, was on, you know, practically in its way to being published, was, was called uh, The Songs of St. Petersburg, which was a, a title that I had had on, in my notebooks for more than a decade. And, uh, and my editor, Paul Slovak at Viking said, Amor, you know, I love the book and I love the title, but um, you do know that it takes place in Moscow, not St. Petersburg. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, there's a problem, you know? So I don't know. So I don't know why I was stuck with that title, but we changed that. Uh, I, uh, Rules of Civility was called Few Are Chosen, and the Lincoln mm -hmm. Highway was called Unfinished Business. I think improvements in all three cases. There you go. Thanks. Yeah. But I, I, I raise that because I'm, I'm working on a book now to be out in September. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. And um, I thought you had a title for that. Well, so here's the story. So I, I was, was working around titles. My editor and I were back and forth and we we're like, we're going to crack, you know, we're going to open up a bottle yeah. of red wine. We're going to sit down and we're going to figure out this title at one point. So halfway through drafting, this is like almost a year ago, I have a title idea and it's great. We both fall in love with it. And even, I even like, saw a picture of the, the cover. Title. Didn't I see a picture? Yeah, of the it's the title uh, on the picture that you saw. Yeah. Okay. And so then my editor, Peter Borland, who's awesome is in a meeting with the sales team at Simon & Schuster and Jonathan Karp is in there, the CEO of SNS, and he presents the book and everyone likes the book a lot. And they're like, this is great, but you're kind of missing the boat with the title. Like, it should be this other thing. So then I'm, I'm out on the, I'm on the road and I get a call from Peter's like, hey, uh, you know, the, the meeting went really well. Everyone loves the book. However, uh, Jonathan had a suggestion on a new title. I'm like, we're revisiting the title now. Yeah. Right. So anyway, uh, I won't spoil it, but short story yeah. is we have a new title. Okay, great. Did you <laughs> so, like, do you think it's an improvement or, well, well, you don't have to say that on the radio. I, it's like 50, 50, you know, <laughs> okay. I, I think, uh, the sales, I, yeah. I don't want to, you know, be a headwind in front of the yeah. sales team. They okay. seem to prefer this other one and yeah. they're the experts on how to sell books. So we're going to yeah. go with them. Great. So, all right. More process questions for Amor. I, this, this is a, an insider piece of info I have, but you have a separate word file per chapter, at least on one of your books, right? Yeah. Is this, do you that, do that all the time? I usually do that, yeah. Because it gets unwieldy otherwise, I guess. Yes, that's right. And, and usually there, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, of, of underwork, you know, I don't know how else to put it. You, you do a draft of a paragraph and you're like, that's close, but it's not right. I will, cop I will pay, copy and paste that to the bottom of the document and start mm -hmm. rewriting it from scratch and it'll evolve into something different but i kind of want to keep the original draft below because sometimes you're like oh the first thing was better yeah you know yeah. I, I, having deleted it would drive me crazy um i may write a whole scene in in a chapter that is not going to be used and that gets you know moved down below mm -hmm. i'll start to ask myself questions and i'll have sort of a running list of questions um, that are identified as such you know, open questions. And I'll have, you know, by the time I end the first draft of a chapter, I might have 15 questions to myself uh, about, you know, it might be a factual question, but it might be a question about motivation or should this happen or, or, or does that character, should that character be here? You know? Yeah. And so, so that, so in essence, the, the chapter document is getting longer and longer and longer um, and has all kinds of sort of answers. And if you had it for the whole novel, it would just be yeah. insane. Well, be, There's yeah, no you way could to do na it. You could navigate. Yeah. So it's just something you learned yeah. As you went, or have you always done this, or you kind of learned this technique as you... Well, you know, I didn't write novels when I was young, so I didn't really have that challenge of, of managing this more complex body of work. And so that is something I kind of learned in, in 
on the go in the yeah. trade. Yeah. Um, th- here's another insider tip. So Amor and I will occasionally meet for lunch and you're, you always beat me to the restaurant by a, a long ways. And, um, when I get there, I get a little window into what your other lunches look like because you have a handful of pages Yeah. and you're revising them. And so yeah. it seems th- this is sort of you, I won't name your favorite spots. So you, you, you get mobbed out there, but you got no. like five or six restaurants around town you love and you go to lunch with a handful of pages to revise and you have a nice lunch. And it's sort of like this romantic thing of like Hemingway in a Paris cafe. It's, you know, there you are. Yeah. Having sort of a working lunch, revising pages of the next great novel. Yeah, I, you know, my 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 behavior is I try to be at my desk at around eight thirty at work before I've thought about anything, done anything, you know, before the news, before Twitter, before email. Uh, and what I'll do is I'll work at my desk from eight thirty to noon or something like that. And then, as you're saying, I will t- I will go have lunch by myself somewhere usually. And so. Uh, and, and when I go, I will either bring the morning's work and edit it, as you're describing, mm-hmm. or I'll bring my notebook and start thinking about, uh, the, say, the next chapter. Uh, you know, so I, I might have notes on the next chapter and some, but I don't really say I have the opening paragraph. And so I'll use sort of that lunchtime to start experimenting with how might this paragraph open. I know what's going to happen in it, but and I kind of have a sense of, of the stakes of what the par- chapter is going to be, and, but I don't really kind of know what, how we're going to enter it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's great because w- while I'm sitting there, if I, I actually, are you always in like your favorite booth or favorite yeah, spot at the I bar? I do, uh, you know, and, and I, you know, like I'm a big fan of the McNally organization. So, you know, I'm at Balazar, you know, sometimes or, at, uh, you know, Pastis or Minetta at night, or, you know, I mm-hmm. like the Danny Meyer universe, you know, Union right. Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern and those places. But, uh, you know, I like the, the, uh, uh, Gotham Bar and Grill. I usually like to be in a place where I can sit and work at a bar. You know, yeah. that's my, my preference where my lunch can be served at the bar. I know the bartender, you know, and people, you know, just they leave me alone. And, um, but, but yeah, I find it's, it's, a, it's a great sh- gear shift for me. So working at my laptop at my desk, carefully writing and editing paragraphs or sentences or chapters, or whatever, to then go out and do an environment where I have, you know, the food, maybe I'll have wine, maybe I won't, maybe I'll have a drink or not. Um, but then, but sometimes it, it, it'll often be that I'll be sitting there with my notebook and I'll just say, oh, this is the way this paragraph, this chapter should open is with this scene or this observation or this, this memory or whatever. And then it's like, boom, you know, four pages can come very quick of, let's say of handwritten notes about what, how that opening is. And that's mm-hmm. invaluable because that's what I can do tomorrow, next morning at 8.30. Yeah. Is, is I know when I get up at, you know, I'm at my desk at 8.30, I'm not going to be staring at a blank page. I know the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to type in those notes from yesterday's lunch, and that will be the beginning of the chapter and get me going. That you gets know? your rhythm going. Yeah, that's it gets right. like the sweat going. And we, you're ready to go. Which is a version of, you know, the famous Hemingway thing of, you know, of, yeah. of, of always trying to stop in the middle of a, of a good idea like you know that that was sort of his i don't remember how he put it exactly but that's the notion mm-hmm. is that when you're writing along and you're like oh great this is perfect the scene could be this is don't write it through to the end necessarily mm-hmm. get it started and stop you know mm-hmm. and give yourself a break because the next day that'll inch that'll get you into the writing immediately yeah. you know and yeah. getting in is is always a you know tricky part of the process so when, when you're back at the desk does it have to be that desk can you write anywhere is there really like a certain atmosphere or a place or how do you what's your sort of comfortable writing spot i'm overly precious in that regard so like you know i have uh, writer friends who write on planes you know i don't Mm. really write very well on planes you know i don't i don't know why uh and uh i don't i wouldn't write very well i I, I love the cafe for what it is and i and i love being alone in my of my uh 
in my office, but I couldn't write at my dining room table while my family was wandering around. Yeah. Like that would drive me crazy, and and, uh, and I would never get into the into the mo- into the right mode. Yeah. Um, so I, I do kind of have to carve out my little sort of space with whatever. I don't know but what it could that means. be. Could it, it be could a be hotel? It could yeah. be in uh, yeah, Martha's be. Vineyard or yes. New York City or yes. whatever. And yeah. I've written, I write in different places, but it's usually a place where I, I can sort of make my own little space for a moment. And by hand or you type? I do it all of the above, you know, kind of thing. But, but usually when, as I say, I'll often start a chapter by hand, but then once I get going, if I really know, understand, if, if the chapter has momentum, I have to write at a keyboard because I can't write by hand fast enough. Interesting. Okay. Um, I know you're doing some short stories now, and I think there's a collection maybe coming out early next year. Yeah, the, the collection, it's pretty much done. I, I have a collection of short stories that's coming out. It'd be almost right around a year from now. Um, and I'm, uh, there's one, the last story is going to be quite long, and I'm, going, I'm doing some work on that, but everything else has pretty much been handed in and is in good shape. So, How, how is it different for you writing those? I mean, could you ever go to a cafe and dash out a, th- a short story in one sitting? Or do you think, do you plan differently? I mean, there's no way you would plan the way you did for Gentlemen yeah, for, for a short story. You're right. But... It, it is a smaller planning program, <laughs> <laughs> thankfully. But but I, 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 I am, a lot of people are writing short stories. A lot of you read The New Yorker or The Parish Review. A lot of those short stories are three, four, five thousand, six thousand words. My short stories tend to be more like 15,000 words. So they're not dash off in a, mm-hmm. in a restaurant. Um, I might, they might have 10 sections. And I might do a section, dash off a section, but um, so they are a little bit longer than the than the typical uh, mm. short story in the in the field. But um, okay. by the anyway. way, when do you when do you normally let others get the first peek at your work? When I'm done with the first draft and having revised it once, so I don't share with anybody, not my wife, not my agent, not my editor. Oh, Finish the first draft, clean it up, and then I might share it. And then th- that's your first three? Well, wife, three, and then I have a couple of other. I usually yeah. give it to about six people uh, when I'm ready at the same time. And I, I like to give it to the, the ones we talked about, uh, you know, editor, New York, agent, wife. But then I have three friends who are very good readers, uh, and I will give it to them, and, and I will give it to them all at the same time. And, and, and I'll try to get feedback from them within 30 to 60 days through, in essence, a series of lunches. Mm-hmm. You know, where I'll sit down with them and interview them about their experience reading the work. Mm-hmm. All right. Last process question for you. Yeah. Do you read? Well, of course you read. But what do you read when you're when you're writing the first draft? Do you try to stay away from fiction that's a little bit too close to your? I run from fiction that's close to what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah. I do not. I, I And I don't. Uh I mean, yeah, I might read, you know, the 19th century novel that has nothing to do with what I'm doing, you know, uh, while I'm I'm. But I'm, when I'm writing deeply, I'm probably reading a little bit less, you know, yeah. too. Uh, but um, but I definitely, I avoid reading what I'm working on, with the exception that maybe a year, two, three years before I do a project, I'm kind of interested in what was written around the time that I'm going to be writing in. So a few years before I set out to write The Lincoln Highway, which takes place over 10 days in 1954, I set out to read a handful of books that were all written around that time. So in, in sequence, I read uh, James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain, uh, which is uh, his first novel. I, I read um, you know, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit by Sloan Wilson, uh, Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye, which is really the last of the great uh, Philip Marlowe books. And uh, I read Flannery O'Connor's short story collection, uh, 
uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find, which was her first work. And what's kind of fascinating about those four books is they're all written in about 18, published within about 18 months of each other. Um, but you have Baldwin writing about, about Harlem, uh, you know, roughly at the time, a little bit before uh, the mid-50s. Uh, Flannery O'Connor's writing about the Deep South. Uh, Sloan Wilson is, uh, his book, uh, A Man in the Great Final Suit, is really the first great book that describes the new white-collar executive that had returned from the Second World War, this sort of veteran that comes back, lives in Greenwich, uh, works in uh, an ad and PR business in Manhattan, takes the train every day, wears a suit and a fedora. There's no, I'm sure that uh, it was a big influence uh, on Mad Men, for instance. The, 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 the world of uh, mm -hmm. Man in the Great Final mm -hmm. Suit is a description of that world. And, and then you have, as I say, Chandler writing about you know Los Angeles, uh, in, at that point in the 50s, kind of at a, at a seedy turn in the life of the city. And so these are sort of four very different voices, American voices, writing about four different uh, parts of four different ways to live in the United States and uh, with a very different tone in each case. And I, that's great for me. I love yeah. that where you can sort of get a snapshot of not simply... You know, you, I don't want to read a book that's about what I'm going to write about specifically. What you want to want to write about is sort of what's going on around the, the atmosphere, the atmosphere and yeah. the periphery. And then that yeah. can kind of bubble up and influence me in different ways as I'm writing the book and, and sharpen my sense of the diction of the moment, the, the spoken language of the moment, the, you know, the, the way a room would be described, the cars would be described, you know, et cetera, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. But, but doing it in this very sort of uh, collage-like fashion. That's a, that's a perfect segue to the next question I want to ask you, which is about timely versus timeless, mm. because You're so Lincoln Hideaway said in 1954, yeah. as you mentioned, which is about as close to present day as you get. I can't remember where Gentleman Ends, but uh, except for your, you have that sci-fi novella, uh, yeah. You've Reached Your Destination, which is sort of set in the near future. But question is, would you ever set a novel in the present? And can you discuss timely versus timeless? Uh, so the, the short story collection that will come out uh, next year there's about i can't remember maybe seven stories set in new york and they're all mostly in the late 90s early 2000s mm -hmm. so more contemporary in that sense uh so i i'm i'm happy to write about in any period you know basically uh if that's what the story demands you know i sort of start with what's the story and and then you know when should it be told and where should it be told and who's in it you know all kind of come out grow out of the idea for uh the story um what was the other question? Timely versus timeless. Oh, yeah. So, you know, and I, I appreciate you're asking about the timely versus timeless thing, because I, I, there's a lot of, of great writing uh, that is, is written to be timely. And in fact, uh, probably the majority of nonfiction is written to be timely today, you know, or at least a significant portion of it, in that it's someone writing about the political environment, the environment, the environmental environment, the uh, you know, an event is happening in the courts, an event's happening in race, um, and the books are being written to to examine what we're going through and to give insight into how we can confront what we're going through and, and potentially change the course of events. You know, a lot, mm -hmm. so a lot of, or you're writing about political figures of the day or, or you know, celebrities of the day, whatever. Those are timely books. And um, some people are writing fiction on a timely basis, too, and, and uh, with a timeliness in mind. Mm -hmm. And I, that's just not for me. You know, mm -hmm. I'm really not interested in writing timely work. I don't trust myself to write timely work. Uh, I'm interested in writing timeless work and, and, and a work that, as I said earlier at the beginning, 
could be read by people uh, of different ages from different parts of the world, uh, you know, from different social classes that enter the tale and and benefit from living in the world of that tale uh, mm -hmm. for the you know, whatever short time of period that it takes them to read it. You know, that's really and I want the book to have meaning 50 years from now, you know, yeah. uh, to a whole new you know, generation of readers. And, and so to achieve that, for me, it's easier if I take myself out of the pressing issues of the times. Yeah. And I really sort of go into something which seems like it's of no interest to the times. I love, you know, when a topic of mine speaks to me as being completely untimely, yeah. <laughs> you know, because then I'm like, oh yeah, that, that might work. This might work. I, I, I try to reconcile it. that all the time. Like I, 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 uh, I get what you're saying and I've, I've read where you've said this before and I get totally what you're saying. However, I would love to see you still take on a big, bulky novel of the present day because there's just a difference between sort of the fleeting issues of the day versus something universal about yeah, today that matters. Like The Sun Also Rises, Hemingway, that is a timeless book that captured that generation. Or even like It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis. It was about the Lindbergh thing. And that, that book is so relevant today. And it, it sort of captured something universal about the time and helped a generation sort of figure itself out in a way. Um, yeah, and I'm not saying I won't ever do it. And as I say, my short stories are kind of more in, 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 uh, in the present mode. But I think that, that when I do it, it's, it's along the lines that you're describing. You know, it, it, it would, it's not going to be in a way that's really drilled down into current events. I had no desire yeah. and would have no desire to write- Rip something book, off the headlines or, or and do COVID that. Or COVID book, yeah. you know, yeah, or, right. or yeah. the tr a book about the <laughs> Trump era, you know, or yeah. like that, then I run from that, you know. But if it was writing about, you know, what it means to, you know, be alive in America in the 21st century, you know, sure, you mm -hmm. know, how are families operating? How are, how are we interacting state to state, you know, in some way, how, how is, how are we being influenced by the media and technology? But, you know, as an undercurrent, yeah. you know, then that's something that I, I certainly would be interested in doing. I just I just don't know when that's going to happen. <laughs> well, you, you capture these periods that you write in in a magical way. And I know you've, you've described yourself. I think I I don't know if this was said about you or if you, you were trying to explain it yourself. And these are your words, but uh, an impressionist version of history where you're not yeah. you're not trying to be some academically accurate historian you're providing the reader a backdrop to set a mood and create an atmosphere but i wanted to ask you what are some of the craziest letters you've gotten so given that you are not oh. a 100 percent accurate historian on things what are some of the craziest letters that you've gotten on on something you may have gotten wrong historically uh, i don't know i mean I, I uh crazy i don't know you know some some of them are are are, are great you know in, zealous yeah there's yeah <laughs> zealous is probably more accurate i mean you know the, the i i uh by the way, I'm topping up my Negroni. I don't I'm know if you're no, interested. I'm good. I've, I'm, I've I'm got still working here. Thank you. Um, I, uh, you know, a, a favorite one of mine was that in, in uh, a gentleman in Moscow, uh, the main figure, the count, goes to the roof of the Metropole Hotel, and he's in a very low point in his in his life, and uh, and he sort of is is revitalized to some degree by running into a, uh, an old handyman that is keeping bees on the roof and who makes harvest honey on the roof in the middle of the Bolshevik era. And the, and he's, the Count is eating the honey and says, oh my God, you know, this tastes just like the lilacs from 
the Alexander Gardens. And the old man says, yeah, well, that's the way it goes. You know, the boys, they, they go out to the lilacs, and when they come back, the honey tastes like lilacs. And, you know, a couple of weeks from now, when they go out to the cherry blossoms, you know, when the boys go out to the cherry blossoms, they'll come back, and the honey will taste like cherry blossoms. You know, that's the way it works. And uh, the guy says, oh, that's great. And I get this lovely letter from a, a woman in upstate New York saying, oh, you know, I really enjoyed your book. It moved me a great deal. But I should tell you that... Um, the boy bees do not go out to the lilacs and the cherry blossoms. It's the girl bees who do that. You know, the boy <laughs> bees don't go anywhere at all. And it's like, oh, right. That is okay. next level yeah, detail. Exactly. So then you, from hardcover to paperback, I made that change. Now, oh, you did. know, we all absolutely so readers of a gentleman in Moscow today. Did, did you have a letter story. also on like a, the football yes, field the Lincoln goal highway, post the Lincoln or something highway. Yeah. I did uh, the, uh, at one point in the Lincoln Highway, one of the characters by mistake sets a goalpost on fire in a high school football field. And he's describing in great sort of wonder and joy the the fire going up the middle post and across the shoulders and up the arms, so it becomes like this burning figure of a of a man and the you know sort of a, sort of reminiscent of a of a burning man on fire and 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 in in, in exaltation and um, so yes now many of your listeners are going to be ahead of me on this but but uh, it turns out uh, thanks to a number of writers that the uh, goalposts in 1954 did not look like a y they looked like an h right right and so yes i did go back and change also that also fixed for oh, the paperback sure. from All right. for hardcover to paperback that has changed now of course sometimes you get things where they say you know me 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 and they're wrong you yeah. know they, it's not they're they uh, they uh, and that happens too. And sometimes you're right. One of them was, and I can't, this amazes me that this has happened. I think I've gotten five letters on the fact that uh, in Rules of Civility, the main character says, well, uh, so-and-so got uh, his just desserts. And in the book, it is spelled with one S. And I have received at least five letters saying, uh, and some of them quite hot. You know, the sloppiness of the modern writer and the lack of editing of the major publishing houses and, mm -hmm. you know, and the lack of education. Where, But, you know, dessert is spelled with two S's. And they go so far as to say, you know, and by the way, that's easy to remember because my teacher told me in first grade. Want more. Yeah, yeah, dessert always is, you want a second helping of dessert. Yeah. So it's that's why two S's. Yes, this is true. Dessert is spelled with two S's. But uh, the expression just desserts has nothing to do with cake. You know? So, you know, just desserts comes from the concept of it is what the person justly deserves. And so it comes down oh, through the lane. There you go. See, so sometimes you get those things too. So, but you know, you have to write back. So very one S is crazy. Just desserts. Just desserts is one S. People. All right. Good. Don't write to Amor about that. Yeah, cut it out. All right. So you. By the way, I've always admired how good you are about responding to. You know, if you send Amor an email, you you know it may take a little bit. He's writing, but he he writes back, and uh, so which is yet another great segue because, as I mentioned earlier in the show, you've been requested. You know, far and away, number one. And so I wanted to get to two listener questions. Oh, yeah, here. great. One is from John Forsyth, uh, who writes, and you, you've covered some of your drafting and your editing, but he comes out with a slightly different angle here. He writes, I would like to request a discussion with Amor Tolls and ask how and when he learned to turn such perfect phrases in his books with exquisite timing. Do they just flow out of him or does he grind to get the words? Okay, uh, John, thanks for the question. And the and so this is a little bit unsatisfying answer because it is both, um, but a lot of the the careful uh, writing is an expression of editing, 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 editing. And and if if you looked at a if you looked at a time lapsed movie of a paragraph of mine, it looks more like the process of of doing a, an oil painting, a portrait. 
you know, where, uh, and this sounds crazy, but you could look at an early draft of a paragraph of mine, three out of 12 sentences might not even be finished. So it might be the first three words of the sentence with a dot, 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 because I'm not sure yet how that's going to sound. And and there may even be a parenthesis in the middle of the paragraph saying earlier, maybe this should be, this should go earlier and then or might, you know, say, what about this? And so that's like round one. Often there's incomplete sentences. And so, as I say, and if you looked at a time lapse of it, I'll then go back to the beginning. You know, I might write the, you know several pages, but I'll go when the next morning. I'll go back to that paragraph and I'll start from the beginning and I'll start to I'll make changes in every sentence. I might solve something. I'll move a sentence. I'll fill out a sentence, but there's still gaps. And then more, in the next day, more comes in. So so and then finally, it's a fully written paragraph, but it's still not right. So then you're rereading it again and saying this sentence needs to be removed. Or rereading it again and saying this is a more an accurate word. This is a, a more resonant word. You know, to go at this place than it's a better verb. You know, whatever. So so you you just keep going over and over and over and and it gets sharper and sharper and sharper until it's you know ultimately what you read. So so the reality is that 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 it is this sort of painstaking process of 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 working over and over and over. But as I said, there's kind of both things are happening. And so I wanted to share with you the other one, which is that because this is true, too. Um, when a reader approaches me around the country and says, hey, this passage really meant a lot to me or, uh, you know, this uh, this sentence or these series of sentences I wrote down on a post-it and put it, uh, you know, above my computer or I mailed it to my daughter or I read it to my, you know, my husband or whatever it is. Ninety nine percent of the time when someone says that to me, the sentence or passage that they're reading is something that I never would have thought of in the course of my daily life. It's something I wouldn't say to my kids. I wouldn't say it to a friend. It wouldn't occur to me myself. What's happened is that in the writing process, I have invented a person who I am not with a different background than mine and a different psychology than mine. I then put that person in a situation in which I have never been. And occasionally, while I am writing about that person in that circumstance, that person will look around the room and suddenly say, you know, the thing about it is da 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 da. Mm -hmm. And those come very fast. So that might be the kind of thing where it's three sentences, I never change a word of it. And, and I usually hit the period and I'm like, well done, Count. You nailed that. I mean, wow. Or you Sally. feel it in the moment. Yeah, like you Sally, know you've, you've you written know. a great one. Yeah. Well, because it wasn't me. It feels like they made the observation. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of Sally sentences in the Lincoln Highway, which I think are really kind of quotable, but it's completely her. It's not me. And, and they come very fast. And I'm like, oh, Sally, you're hilarious. You know, mm -hmm. but so, so there is that kind of thing, too. You can have that thing. Where it's like you're eavesdropping in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the way it feels. So. This is why I say he's the only living writer never to have published a bad sentence. If, in case you were wondering, this is how it happens. Uh, the second question, second and final from listeners, uh, is from Charles Sorrentino. And this actually gets to the second point you were making there about passages that people put on post-its. He writes in about the chapter in A Gentleman in Moscow, 1924, Anonymity, wherein you discuss the way that wine and, and furniture can provide links, wine provides links to the world and old furniture can provide links to our family history and our and our culture. And uh, apparently for Charles, this is among the most highlighted passages in his e-reader. So the question is, do you have a favorite passage of your own? And second is, do you, do you have a sense of what might be the most highlighted passage of yours out there in e-readers? Oh my gosh. You know, and you can look that up. I, 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 I have not done that myself. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, my, my, 
The primary teacher I worked with at Stanford was Gilbert Sorrentino. So if you're related to him, thanks very much. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, he was a wonderful man and a great, uh, great mentor. Um, I, as far as I, you know, I don't, the best thing I can say, and this is kind of related to what we we're talking about a second ago. I have a friend who is a, who paints in a 19th century or even 18th century style. He's a great classical painter named J Jacob uh, Collins. And one of the things that J Jacob's observed to me about his paintings is that, uh, let's say you, you know, broke a painting down into all kinds of quadrants, maybe 16 quadrants, or let's say, something like that is that as when the painting is nearly is basically finished he'll often ask himself out of this all the 16 quadrants that make up this still life of you know of tulips on a desk or this portrait of a, of a woman in a, in a delicate gown or you know because he's doing kind of that kind of work um he'll say which of the quadrants is is the, is bugging me which of the quadrants is the worst quadrant in the painting you know, it could be her hands, it could be her eye, it could be, you know, the, 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 whatever, the window in the distance behind her, what have you. And, um, and then he'll say, okay, if, what if I could take that quadrant that is the worst quadrant in the painting and make it the best quadrant in the painting? And that's a terrific challenge as an artist is, is, and cause he says, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is, so you'll so I'll, so I'll stop thinking about everything else and I'll look at it and then something I'll say, you know what, this this quadrant should be, it shouldn't be that window. It should be a girl peeking through the daughter, peeking through the, you know, through the doorway or whatever mm -hmm. it is, you know. And then you kind of, you discover what that should be. You paint it and then suddenly it's your favorite part of the painting, you know. And he said, what's interesting about that is when you take the worst quadrant and you make it the best quadrant out of 16, it has a big impact in the percentage lift. Yeah, you elevate the entire. You, you've elevated the whole thing by by an, uh, by uh, by more than a sixteenth. You know, mm -hmm. if you want to put it that way. So substantially more than a sixteenth. So I quote this because I it's totally the way I operate. I mean, you know, Jacob and I share that, and I'm doing that in my own work. And, and so, if there's a chapter that's not working for me, if there's a character that's not working for me, if there's a scene that's not working for me, if there's you know a paragraph that's bogging me down, you know. After the thing is finished, you know, the, the draft of that chapter or the whatever, that's what I'm hunting for, is I'm mm -hmm. hunting for what's the thing that really is the worst if part of it. I can flip this. it from worst to best. And then I, yeah. again, it's not just fix it. How about it become the best part, you know? And, and so, and, and maybe there's something there and reason it's bad is because it is a crux. And, mm -hmm. you know, the reason it's, it's bugging me is because it's not living up to the potential of what the event could be at this moment in time in the story. You know, because all the things are all set up for a great moment and I've failed it. And so let's make it the best. And so mm -hmm. and occasionally it happens and you can feel, as you say, the lift of, of the whole chapter and of the book is in its entirety come out of that. And so the reason I, I go through that is because the going back to the question is is about do I have a favorite passage? Let's say one of the book is, is that for me, a big part of making the book better and better and better is you keep you, you, you try to fall in love with a new part of the book than yesterday. You know, mm -hmm. you find the part that you hate and you gotta, you gotta change it to the point where you're like, now that's great, you know? And so, so it's, it's not as if you walk away and say, oh yeah, that's the great part of the book. What you want to do is walk away and, and scattered throughout the book are these things which you have lifted up to, you know, exceeding your own expectations, uh, you know, and, and that hopefully then we'll meet the reader's expectations later. Mm -hmm. Well, you have. Sorry. So enough with with uh, listener mail. Any updates on book to film? Uh, yeah. Uh, a week ago today, they began shooting a gentleman in Moscow in Manchester. And uh, Ewan McGregor is starring as the Count. 
uh, his... When they're uh, shooting, it's real. They're like, nothing's yes. real until, like... Correct. I mean, I guess maybe nothing's real until it actually hits the screen, but no, you're, maybe, you're getting pretty yeah, real now. Now, because now, now there's... They've they've spent so much money. There's no backing out. So even if it's <laughs> who's, terrible, who's behind even if it's all terrible, this? It's, it's like a uh, big screen, small screen. Uh, E1 is the production company. Uh, it, it is a eight hour miniseries. It will show on uh, Paramount Plus, which is you know Showtime in the United States, and you know all that's kind of being merged. But you know that's the streaming service in which it'll show. Ewan McGregor stars at the count. I love him. He's, he's great. He's great. I couldn't be happier. His wife is terrific. Uh, and and is uh, playing the love interest, uh, uh, Anna Urbanova, in the story, and and they met uh, on the set of Fargo, the third season, and and are have terrific chemistry. Are both uh, Mary Elizabeth is an amazing actress, and so very excited about that too. It's really a British production, so it was written by Brits, directed by Brits. It'll be star Brits. Um, for the most part, uh, Mary Elizabeth is an American, but most of the cast are kind of uh, you know the 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 people that you will recognize from. British, British crime right, and yeah, British, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. And, and the My know, wife and I joke, there's yeah, like 12 you know. actors in yeah, Britain. Yeah, like, yeah. So you're seeing all the they're same people and everything. It's yes, amazing. Yes, but they're all excellent. So, yeah. so it'll be like, yeah. but, so that's very exciting. And that'll come out, uh, they'll shoot that this spring and that'll come out in about a year. Um, Rules of Civility, we have uh, the head writer, the director, the showrunner, the uh, head actress, lead actress all in place. Um, and, you know, but that's kind of an earlier stage. Uh, yeah. They have the pilot, but not the whole series written and they haven't built out the cast and everything else. And so I would hope that that would come out in, you know, two years, but that does not have an outlet yet. Meaning, so it has not been sold to okay. steal. And the Lincoln Highway, I have not still, optioned to Still anybody. coming through the funnel. Okay. Uh, well, look, I, I know it's all a separate project and it's different and distinct and your work is your work and that's something else, but it's still fun. Let's be honest. It's it fun, fun to see it happen. It is fun. And I'm going to go, my wife and I are going to go uh, visit the, the set in a couple of weeks. And, you know, that's a, it's fun. Oh, that's it's, great. You're, it's a luxury to have such a large group of talented people trying to take your story and put it in a new medium. Yeah. Then, no question. Yeah. All right. Next question. I, I hesitate to ask because I know that you don't like to talk too much about future work. Yeah. Um, we, we've talked about the short stories, but in, in terms of the next novel, um, you, as 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 I also feel, and many others, it, it takes some of the gas out of it. It's you know a little heat off the pan if you yeah. talk about it too much before it's done. But what can you tell us about the next book? I'll tell you. I've st I started it uh, last spring, and then I put it on. I wrote about a quarter of it, and then I set it aside to finish the short story collection. And I partly did that because two of the characters in the short stories are characters in that novel, and I wanted to finish them and have them out in the world before the novel was released. And so I did that, and uh, and I spent the fall really f finishing the short story collection. But the novel, then I'll go back to that in a couple of weeks, and uh, it'll take me you know, another year or so uh, to get the first draft done, probably. Uh, so we're looking at you know mm -hmm. two years away from it to reach readers or something like that two and two and a half years and that book uh, begins in cairo at the end of the second world war and it ends up in new york city in 1999 and that's all i would tell you about that okay so we're still on our, like our five-year pace here we're looking yeah, at like a 25 kind of thing pretty all close. right all right I, hey not i'll take it whenever i can get it before the lightning round i want to i want to get into one last thing here because i have always admired what great parents you and Maggie are from a distance. And I, I talked to my wife about this as well. So I was wondering if you can share with listeners two tips in particular that I, I know you guys do. One is this sort of Tolls cinema night, a Sunday night at the cinema at the Tolls oh, yeah. house. And then the second would be your uh, sort of global 
cuisine selection for home cooking. Can you can you give tell folks those here about those two stories? Because I think they're just terrific parenting tips and fun uh, ideas to bring the family together. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, well, the, the movie thing that, that Doug is referencing is, and of course, my children are, I have a, ch- a child in college and a child is a, a senior in high school. So this goes back to when we were, they were much younger, you know, even, you know, six and eight and 10 and 12 and, you know, 14, 16, you know, but that was kind of we would have family movie, movie night. My spin on family movie night, uh, for what it's worth, was uh, it was not open for debate. So, so the, the, the movie was chosen by me. <laughs> in this case uh and uh and we would assemble when we'd have the movie and i would introduce it in kind of a a silly way but they would not want to know what it was until it began to run and it, what the reason that we did this it wasn't because i'm a megalomaniac or something or a dictatorial guy it's because when you i you know been in a situation when you have four people of different ages and different mm-hmm. tastes debating what we're going to see the risk you run is that you constantly are watching the same thing over and over that's mediocre because it's the only thing you can all settle on Mm -hmm. you know and so this was a way of trying to get my kids to look at things that that i thought were really entertaining and i was entertained by so you know we watched uh you know errol flynn's uh robin hood from 1938 which is an amazing movie you know and they loved it they would watch it over and over and over uh and then you know we watch uh the or you know the P- uh, peter sellers pink panthers movies which oh, they would watch great. over oh, and over great and over. idea i've got to do that one. Oh my god they love that so so you know we would find i'd find these things and, and and then you know there are things sometimes we would talk about them or discuss them but we'd all have a good time we'd laugh and you know and and every now and then you know, I was trying to be very careful to pick things that, that would entertain them in engagement. But every now and then they'd be like, Dad, that was terrible, you know. <laughs> um, and so that's OK, too. Um, but so that was the, that's the one thing. But we it, my it did end up being that my kids because um, it was very eclectic what we ended up looking at. And it was spanned decades um, that they were like uh, they're they have a very open view on movies in a yeah. very interesting way. So the parallel story um, is which which uh, Doug raised is I do a lot of cooking in the family. My wife cooks too, though. And um, we were kind of at a, we were bogged down and, you know, we were sort of, you know, what are we going to cook this week? What are we going to shop for tomorrow? The kid, making the same things over and over. So we kind of made an agreement as a, as a team. And so we had a couple of years where we said, all right, Monday night, it's Italian. You know, Tuesday night is Asia. Uh, Wednesday night is America. You know, Thursday night is Latin. And, uh, and, you know, that's what we're going to do. And so, and uh, when it's Italian, you make an Italian dish. When it's Asia, it could be Vietnamese, it could be sushi, it could be Chinese food. You know, when it's Latin, it could be Mexican, it could be Costa Rican, it could be Spanish. And by setting up that rule, it was sort of like in advance, you say, okay, okay, Tuesday's coming. You know, so we got to get, we got to get a, a, an Asian dish in the roster. And what we end up doing is going out and getting cookbooks from different countries. And we started experimenting. And what the amazing thing was, we, you know, my wife and I learned to cook a much broader uh, body of, of, of cuisine, but my kids who were quite young at the time, they, they were like eight and 10 when we were doing this, started doing this. Um, if you said to them two years later, what are your favorite 10 meals? There were seven out of the 10 came out of this experiment. Wow. Things we had never made before. They never tasted before. Um, and it was just sort of like they, and, and so like my kids are, are like, they want to go to you know, food trucks anywhere in the world. They want to go, you know, they'll eat anything. Um, and we had so much fun. And so that so I expanded my repertoire. So, oh, it's, yes. it's amazing to get the kids away from, you know, chicken nuggets yes. and mac and cheese. And the so after, after you told me this story years ago, I came home that night and I was so inspired by it. I'm like, we're going to do this. And so we go home and I have in my library like this sort of classic library globe, you know, in my office. Oh, yeah. 
Nice. So I bring the family in. We're all five of us around the globe. And I spin it. And I say to her oldest son, like, just stop it. Like, press your finger on there and stop it. And Love we're going to cook something from wherever your finger is. And it landed on, like, Czech Republic or something. Like that right. Like, just something great. So I'm like, oh, Jesus, what are they making? You know, I have no idea what that is. So I start, we start Googling dishes. And we, like, so we, we try to make the, the thing that sounded the best. And it, and it, uh, wasn't great, I have to say, and and so this thing only lasted like a couple more weeks yeah. that we Spinning even. Globe. I, I am resolved to come back to uh, developing more adventurous eaters in my family right now, away from pizza and mac and cheese. Um, one other question: Could, Are you? Can you tell the listeners about suits? Your family? Oh, oh yeah. So I mean, on a related note, we. I grew up in a card playing family. My wife grew up in a card playing family, and so when and. Uh, when our kids were quite young, uh, we got in the habit of playing hearts together. So, uh, you know, maybe my daughter was six or seven at the at the beginning, and my son was a little older, and uh, maybe you know somewhere around that zone. But because uh, hearts, you can play when you're quite young. We, we played Uno, we played Ratatat Cat when my kids were really young. Then we played Uno, we played Gin, but eventually we were playing hearts. And we play, uh, for those of you who know the game, you know this, you, you play, uh, uh, it, you, it's optimal for a four-person game. You deal out the whole deck, um, and you it is a point-scoring game. And traditionally, the, the perfect way to play is you play four hands, and you pass three cards to your left in the first round, and three cards to your right in the second round, three cards across the table in the third round, and you don't pass cards in the fourth round, and then you keep score over the four hands, and you have a winner or you know, a loser, et cetera. So we would play and we would do it. Um, my wife and I would have a drink, you know, sort of like this. My kids would not. And uh, we'd play, let's say, two rounds uh, or three rounds kind of during cocktails while the sauce was simmering or whatever. And then we'd have dinner and then we'd play like a final round, maybe before watching, you know, the movie, let's say. And uh, so we did this for a long time. And uh, and when my kids are still card players now, you know, in, in my 18-year-old daughter, my 21-year-old son, and we all play cards. But so, <laughs> Doug is fishing for this a little bit. We, we, <laughs> we uh, in you know, last Thanksgiving, um, the four of us, we went in uh, to Brooklyn and we all got tattooed. And we all have a, a tattoo now. We each have a tattoo on our inner right arm. And I have the spade and my wife has the heart and my daughter has the diamond and my son has the club. And so we each have one of the suits. There That's awesome. Yeah, Love it. it. There it is. Love it. You, you got you and Maggie, just great <laughs> no, no, job by you two. Our, we're, all, we're doing our best we can, right? No, you guys are you guys are awesome. All right, so on to the lightning round. Mm. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, favorite book as a kid? I think my favorite book as a kid's kind of as a beginning to really think as a reader and and, and an aspiring writer was the Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury. You know, which is a series of short stories. How old were you when you read Ironically, that? Ironically, you know, the Illustrated Man, I mean, I hadn't even thought about this until just a second. He's a tattooed figure. He's like a guy who's walked out of a circus and he has a tattoo all over his body. And there's this young, a character like me is a younger person, an older person. And they meet at a campfire. It's kind of like in Hobo Times or something. And late at night, the, the tattoos start to move right. on the body of the Illustrated Man and each one tells a different story and so the book is then a whole series of short stories which are depicted on his body and it's you know ray bradley was as famous as being one of the great uh, really the the king of the golden age of science fiction in the united states but he was a great writer of horror he was a great writer of the eerie and the surreal um and so the illustrated man had all that going on 
Yeah. Anyway. I, I, you know, I reread, how old were you? I reread that like five years ago. How old were you when you read that? Oh, I don't know. It was 10, not like, 11, 12. Yeah, wow. So, and yeah. it was kind of creepy, scary creepy. stuff. Yeah. 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 Wow. Loved it. Book or books you're reading now? I am reading, you know, I just finished, which I really loved, was uh, Peter Biskin's history of American movies in the 70s called uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls. For anybody who admires the movies of the 70s, whether it's the auteur stuff like Scorsese and Coppola and Altman or the blockbusters that came in the late 70s, like Star Wars and Jaws, um, it's a totally gossipy, fascinating, fun read. Uh, easy Riders Raging Bulls. Wow, nice. Favorite few, I'm, and I'm dying to hear your answer on this one, favorite few recent TV shows to recommend to listeners? Um, I would uh I mentioned Fargo a second ago, and, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think Fargo, the television series. I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan. I think Miller's Crossing is one of the greatest post you know movies in the of the you know post 60s uh, and 70s. And um, but I actually think the, se- the series Fargo is more satisfying than the Coen Brothers you know movie. You know, I never is that William H Macy. I never watched that. Well, it's 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 no, he's in the movie. Okay. okay. But the series, what makes it interesting is each season it's a different cast and it's a different year and a different crime. But it's done in a Coen Brothers sensibility. So the Coen Brothers clearly deserve enormous credit because the creators of the series are, are it's an auteur, it's the same writer-director who's drawing on on the inventive approach to storytelling that the Coen Brothers have, their their sense of humor, their dark, you know, sort of view mm-hmm. of American life, their, their, all the sort of Coen-esque elements are there. Um, but you're getting the pleasure of seeing this sort of crime story play out over eight or ten hours. Mm-hmm. And the, each season is amazing. You know, and, and one of the seasons, as I said, Ewan McGregor stars uh, as playing two brothers who are at odds. And it's a great, it's great. But I, I, lo- I love that. Uh, you probably mentioned on this, is Slow Horses. Is oh, I love that. Oh, my God. Lee Bar- fellow Yale undergrad, Lee Bardugo, recommended that yeah. one. And I, so after she did, I went out and watched it. It's amazing. Terrific, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Terrific. So funny. Uh, although I could do without the uh, Gary Oldman character and some of his like crass it. thing, I was like, "What?" So you got <laughs> some, yeah, some of the bodily functions he was dealing picking, with his were picking, uh, nose yeah. picking qualities. But that's what makes <laughs> to see Gary Oldman do this is great. Last book that made you laugh out loud? You know, I'm going to cheat a little bit here because I think for for real comedy, and I, I do read books with humor, and and, and, I, and I enjoy you know, books, but but my I really do. Um, for my comedy, I turn to stand up. I'm a stand up fan, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I, I watch a wide array of, of, you know, the one man or woman shows, you know, and God bless the, you know, Netflix and Amazon who kind of, when we were kids, you would buy the record by Richard Pryor, yeah, you know, Eddie listen Murphy, to it over and over yeah. and over. And, um, but so, you know, now suddenly those guys realize nobody's putting comics up on the screen so they could get them cheaply. And so, so now they're all available, you know, you know, our, and so I particularly like, um, I do like the people who shock me. I must say the provocateurs, I do like them, but I also, I really like the guys who, who build men and women who build comedy around narratives. And, and so like Norm Macdonald has some of these jokes mm-hmm. that the joke is 15 minutes long, you know, and they're, it's amazing the way he strings them out. Uh, another guy uh, I love along those lines is uh, Goldman. It's named Gary Goldman, who does these great long thought experiments as jokes. And one of which is he imagines the team that gets together to figure out the two initial, the two letter codes for states. 
You know, so like right. M.A. is Massachusetts, and, and right. it is the greatest yeah, Some of those don't make any sense. Yeah, and he goes through the whole thing, just keeps going and going and going, imagining the conversation they have, and it's, and it's hilarious. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so that's, my, I'm a com- that's my comedy thing. Oh, that's great. Let's see. Your, your reading group, this, this, this question has a little bit of a, a lead-in. You, you're in this reading group that you've been in for many years. I think maybe prior to becoming a writer yourself, you've been in a, a reader. You've always been a very heavy reader, as you mentioned, going back to your Martha's Vineyard you know, youth summers. And you guys have a, a, a habit, I think, of, of sometimes reading a chunk of someone's body of work. You'll, you'll pick four, five, six books by the same author, Yeah, read that, and then get together and discuss. Which author surprised you the most or sort of defied yeah. your expectations? So it's, there's four of us. We've been reading together for almost 20 years. We read a novel a month, and, uh, and we generally read dead authors. So we are reading something that, you know... Has reached some sort of status of a classic, even if it was, you know, it might be 1850, but it, you know, could be 1950. Um, but uh, and we do do it by projects, so we'll tend to read five, six, seven, eight books in a row in sequence, and it might be eight books from the same writer or from the same region or around a central theme. Um, and I, you know, one of the things that we did that was so as a project over a multi-year time frame is we read the works of Nobel Prize winning novelists who didn't write in English and who we had, none of us had read. So we kind of brought up the list of all the winners of the Nobel prize. Who, who are, what are a couple of names off? Well, list? so, I mean, there's all kinds of weird people, but, but, uh, the, so the answer to your question was one of them is Nagub Mahfouz, who's the first person to win the Nobel prize in literature for writing in Arabic. And, uh, and that's going to weigh not a coincidence because the, the novel, for instance, was not, uh, did not co- come uh, did not grow out of an arabic writing tradition there was no history of writing something similar to the novel in the 19th and 18th centuries and mafuz in the early 20th century fell in love with the european 19th century novels and is one of the people who is really sort of recognized as as developing the novel in the arab world for their sensibility for their themes, for their culture. And he wrote this trilogy called the Cairo Trilogy, which is three novels. It's a family over three generations in Cairo, and it is terrific. It's an amazing uh, book and full of surprises and, and satisfying to a Western reader for the reasons that you might anticipate, because he's an admirer of, of, of sort of the history of Western culture and Western storytelling, but then filled with all kinds of, of things which are beyond the scope of what, you know, the typical American is going to engage, you know, in terms of looking at the life in Cairo in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And that's great. I love the mandate of the group. That's, uh, you know, hearkening back to the adventurous eating around the globe. You're doing yes. some adventurous reading and finding Projects. some cool I'm a project stuff. guy. <laughs> I love it. Least attended book event ever. Easy. The least attended book event ever was during Rules of Civility, I'm glad to say. So it was earlier in my career. <laughs> and uh, I'd hate, I'd be sad if it was now. But, uh, uh, and uh, it was at a point when Rules of Civility had been out for about a year. And it had been on the, the Los Angeles Times bestseller list for a year. For, for paperback enti- at this yeah, point. For the then, entire right? year. Yeah. And uh, so I went to Los Angeles and, uh, and I went to go speak at the great independent bookstore, Book Soup which is up in, uh, on, on Sunset Boulevard or, or there. And, uh, and the attendance was zero. Oh. And I got to say, zero is so much better than one. <laughs> right. Because you're uh, off the hook. after five minutes, you're like, guys, 
thanks for having me. We tried. We tried, but good luck, everybody. And I was out of that door. like. And so then you actually get in this funny thing where like 10. That's funny. Zero ten, is better than yeah, one. 10 minutes before go time, you're like, you're like, shit, nobody's here and no one's going to be here. And so then like you're in a, you're going to this very interesting thing where you're watching the front door. And every time the bell rings and somebody walks in, you're like, please do not be person. Please do not be here to see me. Please. Don't be. And you're watching where they go in the store. And then they go off to like the, you know, the, the, you know, whatever the kids section. You're like, thank God, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I got out of there uh, without having to speak on a big zero attendance. Wow. All right. Well, you heard it here. Even Amor Tolls has had a zero. Amazing. Last question. One piece of good advice for the yeah. listeners. Uh, I mean, I'm going to give this advice, which is re writing advice. I mean, for, you know, and for me, the, the, the only advice I really have is, and it's pithy, I guess, but, but it's still true, which is, it's for me, it's read, write, repeat. Because that's what it's been. Ever since I was a little kid, I would read things that interested me, and then I'd write. I wouldn't. I mean, when I was young, I used to actually copy what they were doing. But more, it's sort of read and be affected by what the person's doing, observe what they're doing, uh, be excited by what they're doing, and then go off and do your own thing and allow that to kind of percolate up through the draft a little bit. And even though that might not be that thing you're writing right then, might be too derivative and not your the best work. What you're doing is you're, you're, you're taking those elements of craft and learning them so they can be of use later for your own work. And, and that is, is the, I think, the greatest way to, uh, to develop craft as a writer. Awesome. Amor, what a pleasure. Thank you so yeah. much for coming in. That was Thank so fun. Thank you for fun. having me. Thanks for the drink. Thanks for the chat. <laughs> Great to see you. See you soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. 